Hi, I'm Ann Strayer, and you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Hey, Rachel. So who are we talking to today? Hey, Tara. We are going to be chatting with Coach Ann Strayer. She goes by Strayer. And uh, she's currently a head coach over at Oakland United Rowing in Oakland, California. Yeah, and she's partnered up with Aaron Cafaro, who is another coach there and also an Olympian. Mm-hmm. Um, Strayer was on the national team uh, back in the day as well. But uh, Aaron and, and Strayer are coaching juniors there at Oakland and are really getting on board with um, writing their own letter around gender inclusion and writing their own petition. Um, and so we want to talk to her about that. Why that's important. Yeah. And for folks who didn't catch our last episode, our last episode was was with uh, Dr. Mary O'Connor. Dr. Mary O'Connor was a member of the 1976 Yale Women's Program who took to stripping down naked in the athletic director's office to bring awareness uh, around women in sport and fairness and equality. Uh, she then went on to make the national team and the 1980 Olympic team. And today she's with a, um, an organization called Icons. So you and I heard about Icons last year uh, when they started um, circulating a petition at Head of the Charles. You want to tell folks about that petition? Yeah. So the words that Icons uses. So Icons is an organization that is uh, International Council on Women's Sports and they have different chapters and they call them chapters and they're for the sport. So this is Mary, Dr. Mary O'Connor is part of the rowing chapter. And so they are all collectively fighting for what they're calling fairness in women's sports. They use language like save women's sports. And Icon's rowing chapter made a presence at Head of the Charles. And I saw them at another big regatta here on the West Coast, uh, Head of the Lake. And basically what they were doing was describing the unfairness of male born or assigned male at birth uh, athletes who transition and are female, call themselves female, identify as female, identify as a woman, um, participating in collegiate and elite sport. And in this case, rowing and how their consideration of this is that it is detrimental to all the work that has gone forward um, getting women's sports up to a level that it is now, which is still not even remotely equal to men's sports, mm-hmm. uh, traditional men's sports. But they're saying that they, the transgender athletes, essentially their transgender athletes, are taking away spot. And so it makes it unfair. And also they have an unfair uh, biological advantage, potentially. So it was an interesting conversation. I mean, she's a doctor. She's a scientist. She's also coming from that Title IX era and that <laughs> early Olympic era when doping and things like that were so prevalent for certain countries. Um, and it was good to get to know her and get to know her side or icons side of the issue. But she also got personal. And I, I appreciated that about her. Now, Strayer's group is pushing a letter, a petition to U.S. rowing and out into the public, really saying that inclusion is really a key component to youth self-worth, sense of self-worth, sense of success. And it's interesting because Mary and Strayer potentially are talking about the same things. Now, we'll have to talk to Strayer and see what her background is and where she's coming from. Yeah. So um, when, when the Icons petition started circulating and they actually got it published in Rowing News magazine, and I think yeah. that's when Strayer and Aaron Cafaro picked up on it. And they decided to write their own letter in response, which they are circulating and has been signed by something like 50, uh, you know, Olympians and well-known and well-respected coaches. And um, I just wanted to read real quick um, one little thing from their letter, which says that uh, we applaud U.S. rowing and the new supportive gender identity policy, which is inclusive and values forward. Um, They also acknowledge the struggle of the Title IX generation, right? Which is really the, really just before her, you know, Mary O'Connor, who we talked to last time, was like one, maybe two Olympic cycles uh, before Strayer. 
So they acknowledge, you know, that there's all this work that's been done by generations of women to get women to where they are in terms of sports and equality, but just feel that inclusion is the most important thing. Yeah. And that's what they're basing this on is this concept of inclusion. And they're sort of setting aside the fairness on the competition level, on the elite level. They're sort of setting that aside and trying to for more of a cultural move. And yeah. and I think that Dr. Mary O'Connor's case is that there is to her and in her opinion, it doesn't seem to be that prevalent of an issue. Let's be honest. Like there's there's not a you know, a blood of, of athletes trying to fit this kind of mold. There are some that are more popular in culture now than others like Leah Thomas in swimming. But Mary O'Connor has this tactic that if you were born male and you go through puberty and you transition later, you know, in your 20s or 18 to 20 years old, you have this advantage. And okay. Strayer doesn't address that. Strayer and Kafaro don't address that. So let's just be clear. They're talking about a cultural shift. I can't wait to hear maybe what the inspiration is behind that. Maybe there's a, a, an athlete in their program. Maybe they're coaching uh, trans athletes. I think we're going to find out yeah. uh, really what's at the heart of this one. Yeah. And just for one, one more bit of differentiation between the two, I, you know, ICON's petition is really looking at the collegiate and elite athletes. And um, Strayer and Confaro are really looking at scholastics you know juniors and saying at that level let's kids let's give them a safe space to row and be kids so let's see what she has to say yeah let's do it i'm tara morgan and i'm rachel friedman here at steady state podcast we're really interested in backstories the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing stories about the humanity of our sport, we're disrupting the narrative about rowing culture and celebrating real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. And listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans, Search the podcast archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics or listen on your favorite podcast app. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Concept2, making world-class rowing products since 1976. Find out more at concept2.com. And Live to Row Studios, live online and in-person indoor rowing classes, training camps and coaching for everybody. Visit livetorowstudios.com. And Barb, for short hairstyling needs on and off the water, find Barb at thebarbshop.com. My name is uh, Ann Strayer, but I go by Strayer. My pronouns are she, her, and I learned to row in high school at Phillips Academy Andover. And I rode for Princeton University, and then I rode with a club in Boston that is no longer called Boston Rowing Center. And I rode for the U.S. national team and uh, an Olympic team. Today, I'm a lawyer in California, and I am the head women's rowing coach at Oakland United Rowing. It's a high school program. I've been coaching for seven years now. I started coaching when my kids started high school and the other coaches realized that I'd had some rowing experience. So I got sucked into coaching and I'm still there and I love working with high school kids. So Strayer, we have this thing that we do in our episodes, every single episode, everybody does it. And it's called rapid fire. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Port or starboard? Ambiorus. I was okay. a scholar on the US, on the national team. So and I wrote both sides. Bow seat or stroke seat? Tough one. A bow. Head race or sprint race? Sprint. Uni suit or tank and trap? Uni. Favorite cox and command to receive? Paddle. <laughs> Sorry. I I just think it's fascinating. A lot of people answer this question in that sort of a way like they they're all glad say, when, they're glad when it's done <laughs> yeah way enough way enough 
Um, favorite place to row? Hmm. I, I think um, the Connecticut River up in uh, New Hampshire, mm. Dartmouth. Best piece of rowing advice you've ever received? Think about the when your hands are when your blade or blades are going in up into the catch. You want to think about. Let's imagine there was a quarter or or a penny on the top of your wrist, right? Mm. And as you're you know you're carrying your blades low enough that you're not going to have to lower your hands at the catch to square up, but you're uh, as you're moving into the catch and you're beginning you've already squared up your blades and you're putting your hand and your blade, while well, you're putting your blade into the water, there's just an upward motion with your hand, like a punch, almost as if you're punching forward. And that quarter, that penny, is flying off into the water in a straight projection away at the same projection as your hand punching up into the um, air. That's how your blade goes into the water. That's the little bloop you hear. That's a little backsplash that you're hearing. You're not missing any water at the catch. Most of my girls have it. They, they've figured it out now. But I would sometimes just sit on the dock, even just with, with just a sweet plate in, in, in one hand, right? And just moving my hand forward in that one direction to hear that little tiny, you can feel it in your hand, that little um, back, because uh, you're it's a tiny backsplash. And then there's that a suction from the front of the blade where the water hits the front of the blade. And, and you not only feel it in your hand, but you can hear it. And that was advice that was given to me by Tom McKibben in 1978. And Tom McKibben wrote in a, a double with John Van Blum, I want to say in the 76 Olympics. Um, but then he also coached me. He was just a fantastic coach, both of them. I've heard that described a few different ways as a ski jump, you know, as a, a ramp. Uh, the dining room table, put the tablecloth out on the dining room table. But I really like the idea of some momentum sending something off off your hands like that. Okay, last but not least question, coffee before or after a row? After. That's rapid fire. That's it. We ask the same questions of all of our guests. We have four seasons worth of rapid fire answers. So we've got... Everybody from Eric Murray from New Zealand to uh, the board president of the Nassau Rowing Club. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. We really like to focus here on our podcast on the people behind the issues and the stories. So we're going to talk with you about you a little bit first. Sure. All right. So in the 1970s, you're a kid, you're in school, uh, junior high, high school. What is keeping teenage Strayer busy? It was totally sports. I, when I was in junior high, I was playing softball, basketball, I guess tennis. You know, I mean, I, I grew up on Cape Cod in the summers, you know, we, there was this little dinky, I mean, I, I say yacht club and you guys are probably thinking, oh, lots of money, you know, boats, but no, it's just like this little dirt road down to this little tiny, literally a, one boathouse, bathroom and lockers for your bathing suits and stuff, and then sailboats and a couple tennis courts. And so I, that in the summer and uh, then in middle school, it was basketball site, um, softball. I went away to boarding school in maybe 1974, and somebody came up to me and said, hey, do you know how to row? And I was like, well, I can row a rowboat, because I'd rowed those around to get out to our boats to go sailing and stuff. So I said, sure, yeah, I'll come out. And they needed, um, there was a, there was their var- the Andover's varsity women's, you know, or girls crew, and they were looking for a, an eighth person in the boat. So I I jumped in the boat with them and that was it. I was, I was, you know, not to say I was a natural, but I was okay. And I played basketball in the winter in high school. So it was like, it would be, you know, it was before rowing became a year long sport, right? It was, you know, fall rowing, basketball rowing, and then summers off until I went to the junior worlds in 1978. And from then on, it was always summers Mm. rowing. Yeah, I think um, just having sport in your life continuously requires, especially in the 70s, as Title IX is rolling out, must have required some real forward thinking 
by and I and I know that the the options might have been more limited, but I played the same sports. I did tennis, basketball, and softball, and I think Rachel also was a very big uh, softball player. So, what was the the vibe around women's sports as you were coming up? Did you feel like you were equally treated and you were equally uh, acknowledged? You know, and it, it's interesting. In high school, I would say yes. You know, we shared the boathouse with you know the guys. We both the guys and the men's te- uh, guys and the women's team. We each had our own coach. We definitely weren't rowing in worse equipment. I never felt like I was a second-class citizen in high school. My dad went to Princeton. My great-grandfather went to Princeton and my grandfather. Um, so I was going to Princeton. And also, they had a great rowing team at the moment. They still do. Definitely felt like a second-class citizen at Princeton when I first started. We weren't in the in the main boathouse, which has since been redone. I don't know if you guys have been down to Princeton, but their boathouse is... It's incredible. But when I was there, we literally were in, I want to say it was like a double wide. That was, if you're looking at the boathouse, was to the left of the boathouse, kind of behind where the launches are kept. There's that overhead building that motorboats can go in for coaches' launches. And it was there. And um, there was one little dinky shower and it was tons of mold and just, it was just skanky. While I was there, they put in a women's locker room upstairs in the in the boathouse, and my coach at the time, which is um, I had I was really fortunate. I was coached for three years by Chris Korzanowski, and he was just incredible. <laughs> he was also just very funny. He totally had his hand in resi- in designing the locker room, so it was complete with like black tile everywhere (laughs) and he just thought that was the greatest thing but it was it was awesome we loved it but definitely you know we were rowing in men's trow which was kind of cool they got laundered that was the first time you know any of my stuff had ever gotten laundered you had these big huge honking like clothes pins or safety pins right and you'd them through your clothes and you know throw them in this thing and they miraculously come back clean so, so things got better, you know, I know, I know some of the women that took off their clothes in front of the AD at Yale. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there were, you know, I know what we're going to get onto those people. I mean, those are people I super respect, you know, and they, they paved the way for many, many more women, but things were, it had already passed. So things were getting better for me. And just to put things in in order for everyone, so Title IX is uh, 1972. You joined Princeton what year? 74 to 78 is Andover, 78, 82, Princeton. So it was well underway at that point. Yeah, it was definitely underway. I mean, you know, they were having to get their ducks in a row, right? So I graduate from high school in 78. I've decided that I'm going to go to the Olympics I watched Joan Lind row. I know who Liz Hills and Lisa Stone was Lisa mm-hmm. Hansen at that point. And this is Chevy Stone's mom. Those three women were my idols. So I decided I was going to, you know, make it to an Olympic team. I go to Princeton and Korzenowski's there. I didn't know who he was, of course, but, you know, he had a very, very thick Polish accent and was constantly swearing at us and telling us that his grandmother with one leg could row better than us. But you know what? That was way back when, and you could yell and swear at kids. And I loved him. I thought he was great. He was just a fantastic (laughs) coach. There were a number of women that were training at Princeton at the time, uh, or over the years by Korzenowski was still still there. So you have people, Anita DeFrance was there with Kaz Crawford. Um, They were rowing a pair. Then there were other women. The only other woman that I saw off and on regularly there at the boathouse but, but with her own Princeton connections would have been Carol Brown. We are curious. So for you, it's almost a decade later by the time um, you join the Princeton program. And you already at that time are saying to yourself, I know that I want to make an Olympic squad. And it sounds like there's a program in place for you at Princeton to help develop you to that um, Olympic squad. Do you remember what sorts of goals the program had those first couple of years you were part of it? Yeah, we were going to beat Yale. 
Yeah. I mean, at that point, it was, you know, this is before, um, you know, UVA had a program. This is, you know, what Title IX ultimately did, which was to start, like UT Austin, you know, didn't exist. So really, the, the powerhouses of rowing when I was at Princeton were, you had Cal on the East Coast, UW, Wisco, and then the Ivy Leagues. That was it. So mm-hmm. we knew we could beat the West Coast Wisco people. Um, I mean, we were good. So it was at that point, it was Yale and Princeton that had the fastest programs. So and we, my team was undefeated my junior year. And I say my team, I was captain. So I always get kind of possessive, but undefeated until the last race of the season and Yale beat us. And then my senior year, I was captain again and we were undefeated. How did you get developed as an, as an Olympian? Because sometimes nowadays people go to ID camps and they go to, uh, yeah. through a, through a whole system of time trials and training and, yeah. and they go to a center. So were you being coached, uh, separately or how were you working towards your Olympic goals? Yeah. So I'm going to take you back one tiny step. If you imagine, uh, so Christmas 1977, I wake up in the morning and my dad tells me to go out to our barn and I go out there and there's a single. So my dad had rode at Princeton and he'd rode in high school at Kent. And it's funny because he never really talked about it, right? So he was, you can imagine, I start rowing at Andover, he's tickled pink and this single arrives in our in my in my parents garage so that gets taken up to school so in the spring of 78 my senior year I am in the morning I'm going out in the single down to the Merrimack Mm -hmm. in in north of Boston I'm rowing in my single and in the afternoon I'm rowing in the eight and I then I made the junior team in the quad which was coxed at the time and we mm-hmm. went to Belgrade, Yugoslavia, That's bothered, when there was still a Yugoslavia in 1978. So then when I went to Princeton, it was, you know, I was super fortunate. I walked onto the varsity along with my roommate, actually, from Princeton, who's still a very, very good friend of mine. I slowly realized how good Chris was, that he rode for the Polish national team, had defected to Canada and then had come down to the U.S. And I was still, you know, I would go out in my single in the morning. I had to make sure that Chris was okay with it, you know, because the, the focus for him was the eight and making sure that that was a priority. Back then, you were basically doing, you know, there were these national team, you know, testing weekends. And mm-hmm. so you would be, we would be doing um, erg pieces and a bench pull test. And depending on how you performed, you would be invited to a camp. So that's sort of how it, you know, I was still doing two, oftentimes two days on my own. But then when testing came and if I was lucky enough to get invited, I was invited. So 79 and 80, I didn't make any team. And 81 was my first national team. So that was when I was a junior at Princeton. And the quad, again, was still coxed. Mm. My coach was Ted Nash. And the worlds were in Munich. But the next year, the boat went uh, straight. No coxswain. What was that transition like for, for you as rowers to lose your coxswain and just be in charge? Oh, it wasn't losing. It was kind of getting rid of. I mean, because, you know, imagine you're in a quad and you've got a coxswain and you're looking over, there's the men's quad. They don't have a coxswain. Mm. I mean, it was, it to me, it was like, the only reason we have one is because we can't steer. So I loved it. I mean, yeah. it just made the boat faster. Sure. Lighter. Did they introduce um, the toe steer at that point or did you do rower steer? Did, did they no. put in a toe steering system? Yeah, they had toe steering yeah. and you could move it throughout the boat. So, you know, Sometimes at the world championships, if you're bow, you know, there was one instance where, you know what, we're just better off having the stroke toe. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter because you got a straight course, you got buoys overhead on both sides, so you don't need to look around. Generally speaking, it would be the bow. 
Home buyers are flocking to Maine for mountain, lake, and ocean access, friendly neighbors, and above all, relaxation like you'll find nowhere else. If the vacation land lifestyle is one you'd like to explore, reach out to the folks at Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by EXP Realty. With agents up and down the coast and inland to the mountains, they'll provide the friendly expertise needed to get you into your next home in Maine or New Hampshire. Learn more or contact the team by visiting breakwaterrealtygroup.com. The Steady State Podcast is made possible with listener support. Become a patron today for early access to episodes, discounts on SSN swag, and invitations to patron-only events. Find out more at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, we're back with Coach Ann Strayer. That's one, two. We have you here today to talk about a letter that you and Aaron Kafaro have put together. And we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this letter and how it came to be. Sure. So you know that in uh, December 2022, U.S. Rowing came out with their new gender identity policy. And essentially what the policy says is that people can row with the team with the gender that they identify with. So if you're a trans woman, you can row with the women's team. If you're a trans man, you can row with the men's team. And in early February 2023, Rowing News posted an article about a group of former Olympians who were maybe either two or one or two cycles ahead of me in age. So I, I know most of them. And the article was about a formal opposition that they had put together, um, voicing voicing their opposition essentially to the new gender identity policy and essentially saying that, you know, they had worked so hard for Title IX, that this was a setback, that women would never be as strong or as powerful as men, that you just, there was no equality, you couldn't make it equal, the sky is falling. And I just got really fired up about it. I coach these athletes. You know, I co- I've coached trans kids. And believe me, a kid is not transitioning so they can go row <laughs> on a team where they're going to do better. They're transitioning because they identify. And it's interesting because I've, I've read some of the, the criticism and, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, they still have opportunities to row. They can They can row with the boys team. It's like, but they're not boys. And there's a crucial difference. I mean, these people don't understand. These these young kids are just trying to find a place where they belong. So from the coaching aspect, that was um, a real impetus. And the other thing is one of my kids is trans. And he came out his senior year at, at, um, at Tech. And I remember thinking, oh my God, couldn't it just been a lesbian? It's a lot easier. But his teammates were great. I mean, he just basically told us at Christmas and he said, I want to row with the men. And I said, okay, just ask, ask the coach. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. And the guys were like, oh yeah, sure. And the next day everyone's calling him he, and he was just so excited, so excited. And, you know, then the first away regatta comes and, you know, do you think I can stay with them in their rooms? Hmm. I don't know. Ask them. Yeah, they were, they were great. They're like, sure, you know, you're one of us. And, and it was, he was just so welcomed and it just meant a big deal for him. So it's a little background. I have skin in the game. Okay. So having him have a, a sense of belonging in something that he loves, he loves rowing. He wanted to stay in rowing and having that sense of belonging, you can understand that both as a coach and as a mom. Of course, of course. I mean, it's just a place where you can be yourself, you know, and where everyone is appreciating who who you are, and you're just you're one of you're one of the guys. Since that time, you know, we've got non-binary kids at the boathouse, we've got trans kids at the boathouse, and it's really important for me that they have a space where they can feel and be themselves, you know, and so. When this article came out by this group of women, and as, as I've said, I think I, I know all of them quite well, except for 
I want to say her last name is Simmons, um, but and she's a Cal alumni. But, you know, I, I saw it and I thought, this is just wrong because, you know, the majority of the people that are being affected by this policy, I want to say 97% of the people that are being affected by this policy are master throwers and, and youth throwers. Because the NCAA, World Rowing, the IOC, they now have implemented guidelines that will prevent and this is where, unfortunately, you know, where I think all this came from is Leah Thomas. And, you know, I, I wish her the best. I'm glad that she was able to finally transition. But because she transitions so late, um, you know, she was able to get uh, probably more body mass, more arm length, more, you know, there are things that in the row, in, in the swimming world where, transitioning later would give a trans woman a, a uh, an example. I think the body types and mechanics of rowing are, are a little bit less so, but I mean, their trans women have been allowed to be in the Olympics since 2004 or 2006. It's in the piece that I wrote. And there's only been one trans woman athlete on the Olympic team. And that was the um, power lifter from New Zealand in Tokyo. I mean, where are all these people coming out of the woodworks to, you know, bob people off the team? I mean, Erin Kafaro, you know, two-time gold medalist who's, she's 5'9", and she works super hard. She's not real, real, real tall. I mean, she's not worried about some trans woman coming to, you know, take her spot. Anyhow, I just, I, I feel like there are now safeguards in place. I mean, I think Leah Thomas started the ball rolling, but I think that there are safeguards in place now to make sure that trans women are not going to suddenly, you know, take cis women's place on teams. What's really troubling is that, you know, a lot of these new rules say that, well, yeah, you have to have transition before before puberty. That's some of the new mm -hmm. rules that are coming out. And yet we have how many states now recently that have passed legislation banning gender affirming care. So, you know, you're creating this, this problem, you know, the kids, if they want to transition and they're in that state, then they can't do so. Then what happens if they transition later and they really like the sport? Well, then they can't do it because they grew up in a state where you couldn't have the gender affirming care. And yeah. I think that there's a whole movement of younger and younger and younger folks becoming trans. And I think maybe what the group that wrote that piece for Rowing News is seeing is that wave coming up through your programs and high school programs where those kids are from a different generation. They have different attitudes about gender. They're very genderless in a lot of ways. Um, they don't see the binary the way that we were all so conditioned to see it. And I wonder if they see that as a tide coming uh, into the elite level of rowing, because you're right, it is masters and juniors, and that we haven't seen the data to prove that there is a, a flood of, or even a few uh, trans athletes trying to compete at the elite level yet. Yeah, right? or even at the collegiate level. Um, collegiate we know elite, we, yeah. Yeah, we know that it's happening, but we don't have the data to support a massive concern that trans and non-binary athletes are taking spots from girls. One thing that we have heard is that, um, you know, trans girls will never be biologically female. Therefore, they should never be able to row in women's events. And instead of them rowing in female events, they should row in open category events. Yeah. And I, you know, I just disagree. I mean, because, you know, a trans woman in her mind is a woman and you put them in an open category. It somehow, again, makes them different. You know, they're not seen as a woman. You know, one of, one of my good friends that doesn't really like this analogy, but it's, it, and it doesn't go all the way because it has to do with race, but I, it still works for me, which is separate is never equal. I mean, I don't want to row with an open team. If I, if I believe I'm a woman, if I, if I feel like I'm a woman, if I, if I'm, if I'm a woman, I don't want to row with that, that, that group, I want to grow with the group that I identify with. And, and I think that, that that person's not hurting anyone. Now, you know, but problem too is I, I live in California. <laughs> We're ahead of the curve here. 
I think Tara and I are about to say the same thing, which is, you know, we've, we've spoken with a lot of people, a lot of rowers, coaches, and coxswains from across the country and even around the world. But when we talk East Coast versus West Coast in the United States, people from California are a different breed. And the, the acceptance and integration of, of everyone, it, it's just this whole different feeling than we get out here on the East Coast, I think. It's yeah. weird, isn't it? Yeah, we had a great conversation with uh, Lisa Stone uh, yeah. when we interviewed Lisa and Jevy. I, like, I adore Lisa. She was one of my most favorite. Yeah, for sure. And I remember meeting her on the East Coast and thinking she was super East Coast. And so we were having this whole conversation about women and disparity and the locker rooms. And then she goes, we were in California. Like, well, you know where she actually grew up about two miles away from here. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. Piedmont. Yeah. And she was like, it was great. We had boats, we had equipment, we had coaches, you know, she just didn't, I think it was a real eye opener for Tara and I, who've spoken to a lot of women of that title nine generation who happened to be out East, who spoke in the Ivies, not just East, in the Ivies. Yeah. 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 She definitely, um, and the West coast, like you remember, you know, you've heard of Zlack, right? Yeah. The rowing club. I mean, that's, but that was founded I don't know, way back when, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, late 1800s, I think. Yeah, but you know, there's, you know, women have been a part of rowing on the, on the West Coast for much, much longer. So I want to ask about this letter and what quick back step is, what's your relationship with Erin Kafaro? Yeah, so I, I first met Erin, I first met her in August of 2022. And learned that she would be the men's coach at Oakland Tech. We have since renamed ourselves Oakland United Rowing, basically so we can get more Oakland schools involved as opposed to just Oakland Tech. But I met um, Erin then, and I adore her. She's just great. My team has never been as fit as they are Mm. um, right now, and that's thanks to her and her training this is the first time she's coached um, high school rowers, right? It was very funny because she's like, well, you know, I want to make sure that I'm really clear with my boundaries and that I'm listening to the athletes. And, I'm, you know, and I, was, and I would say to her, they're just playing you. Okay. They're, they're going to see how long, how far they can push, how far they can push you out. What are, what, are the, what are the boundaries, you know? And she's totally on board now, but at first she's like, but you know, and I'm like, they're high schoolers. Okay. They're going to see if they can push. <laughs> You know, and I think she's totally fallen in love with coaching them also, you know, because it's, it's just, you know, you know, high school rowers, unless they're, I have a much harder time with ninth graders because, you know, the the parents are making them, half of them row. But after ninth grade, they're there because they're super committed and it's a super, it's it's a certain type of kid and, you know, she's fallen in love with them too. So who is signing your letter? And what's the goal for the letter? So Aaron and I authored this piece, you know, which essentially says what I was talking about, which is, you know, they're not a threat. And this is a super inclusive and we applaud U.S. Rowing for taking this step. And Aaron and I, we pretty much authored it. And Jenny Gilder had a look at it early, early on when it was in its Nathan stages. And then we've gotten over 50 people to sign on to it. And the majority of those people are... Well, there are a bunch of Olympians, and then there are a ton of youth coaches. And what's interesting, we are still looking for a platform, and you guys are going to be you know, useful for this. We'd reached out to Chip at Rowing News, who had who initially cited the, uh, the piece in February. And mind you, we went through each of these, every, every single person that agreed to sign, either were spoken to personally or email or text and confirmed not once, but twice. And I mean, we were super good about making sure, you know, you want to sign on to this, right? We send it to Chip. Chip texts us back and says, the first person I reached out to said no. And I said, I'm the first person. You didn't reach out to me. And he's like, well, we just don't have time for this. You know, I was like, well, how about you just go with Aaron, Ginny, and me? I mean, I'm just desperate to get it printed. When when Strayer and I talked the other day on the phone, we talked about, we listed off a number of the different platforms from Rowing in Color to We Row Like This, Alex Del Sordo, Rower's Choice, you know, and all these different um, avenues. 
And I think what's interesting is where we put Rowing News in terms of it, the pedestal that we put it on. It is the only real print publication. Um, it does get into the mailbox of every U.S. Rowing member who checked that box. Um, and they have a big regatta presence. I wanted to ask you, one of the tactics that the group who published that article in, in wrote that article in February, one of their tactics has been to go to major regattas and hand out flyers. Um, and I'm wondering if you and Aaron have any plans to go to the youth nationals, masters nationals, head of the Charles, if you're going to take it that that, down that road. Do you guys know Mary Masio? Yes. Yeah. From a most beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we were in touch with Mary because, you know, well, Chris Ernst, you know, signed on, you saw, I think, and Ginny, you know, rode with Chris and then Mary Mazio there, there's, you know, there's, I I just know them all, you know, because when we were all rowing around the same time, but Mary's big thing, because at one point she thought we were too hard on the opposition people. And, you know, she said, you know, it's only five people there. They haven't gotten much of a voice. They, they just got the rowing news platform. Why do you need to poke them in the eye? Which is one of the reasons that we took it made it made the focus mostly about trans youth. Right. But I do want to poke them in the eye because they're wrong. They've been around since the head of the Charles. Right. But they still I mean, it's not like anyone's signing sign on. I mean, I think that they're they're a last hurrah. I mean, I, th- I think they're wrong. And I think that, you know, safeguards are coming into place that, that show that these people are wrong. I did a little bit of sleuthing online and they have actually been published in several places. It's not just rowing news. They've been published in the UK. And so they're really getting the word out. And I think like Tara was saying, it would be quite interesting if you all were able to uh, get your letter in many more hands in, you know, by way of a few different outlets. I I think that icons is really ramping up their um, marketing and strategy right now. At one point, Aaron and I were just talking and it's just, it's super hard. It's especially super hard to realize how divisive it is and to realize that there are people, I mean, I had a conversation with a former Olympian colleague of mine, a sweeper. And, and she, and she said to me, she's like, they, they can still row. And I was like, where? She's like, with the boys. And it's like, but they're not boys, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, you know, and I said to Aaron, we were just kind of frustrated and, and, that's what our goal is just over the next, you know, probably through the end of April is just trying to find as many people as we can. And, and we're going to try to go to bigger pieces first. We're even going to reach, reach out to ESPN. Aaron's got a contact there or whatever, but you know, she and I were talking and saying, you know, when all is said and done, we'll know that we were on the right side. And, and, th- and that's what I think. I mean, I, maybe that sounds pompous or whatever but I, I think that you know trans kids are they're the new you know gay lesbian target um and if you guys haven't figured out yet i'm a lesbian for a first-hand account of the trans experience in scholastic and collegiate rowing take a listen to our 2020 conversation with Killian mullen and leah miranda get the episode link in the show notes on our website in two, we're back with Coach Ann Strayer. That's one, two. Can I ask a podium question? When we have spoken to other athletes from that era, from the seventies, eighties uh-huh. uh, era, there was still very prevalent the doping happening from the Russians and the Germans that had caused such uh, disparity in the fairness of of women's rowing at the time. Um, and I know some of the folks who are involved with icons. Um, we talked to someone from icons last week and they brought that up as, as a real impetus moment. And I want to ask you like what the feel was at those world championships when you knew or strongly suspected that there wasn't really a fair playing field. Sure. I was super aware of the fact that when we were, when I'm at the, you know, world championships in 1982, 83, that there are, that there are East Germans, that there are Romanians that are there that clearly are, you know, Russians clearly that are 
they're huge. They're just gigantor. I mean, bigger than anything I've ever since then ever seen. I mean, yes, U.S. rowing, the women now, the the team, they're incredibly tall. I mean, I kind of, I feel like I was lucky to be born when I was born because had Title IX passed sooner and more people been exposed to rowing, I never would have made a team. I mean, I really was the the timing for me. Uh, I'm too small. I mean, maybe I might have, you know, Jevy Stone, you know, she's only 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, um, you know, she does have two Olympians as parents to teach her. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was always just so excited to be there. But it was depressing. It was depressing to see these women that were gigantic, huge, just, um, and pretty clearly, you know, a lot of uh, acne. I mean, they didn't look good. They looked almost poisoned. It was a weird thing. I I remember I went to the Goodwill Games in 1986, and that was uh, in Moscow. And I remember riding back from the course with a bunch of athletes, and there was a, a Russian in the back seat, and I was in the back with him, and a Russian guy. And he uh, he said to me, he's like, it's big, you know? And I was like, nah. I don't need to get big. It's like, oh my gosh, you're like, like, it's big. Yeah, it's big. Be fast. You know. Yeah, that's what they knew, and that's what the that's what their system system was telling them. Oh yeah. no, they all knew, and it's just like, yeah. but you know what? They knew, and I remember thinking, you know, if they get a medal for their for their country, they're set. You know, I mean, the, the, the government is then going to pay for them and their families. I mean, it's a huge, it was a huge deal for them. I mean, it was a sacrifice that they were willing to make for, for themselves, but and their, and their families, it was a way, it was a way to lift themselves out of sort of the communism and, and the way that the regular people were treated. I mean, I definitely felt, well, no way we can compete with them. I mean, you know, I would do like, okay, I, always wearing my clogs down to the dock. You know, I always wore clogs at the world championships just to give me that little bit of lift, Um, (laughs) you know, and just, you know, confidence. I I tried to be a badass, you know, and I I do know that now many years later, I was scary to some people, well, mostly coxswains because I didn't need them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But mostly I'm just a big mush ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and my, my athletes know that it's very funny because it's very common not knowledge at the boathouse that I terrify most of the novices. And and yet, and they all, all of my athletes laugh with me now. They're like, you were so scary, but you're really not at all, are you? Yeah. Yeah. How did uh, coaching come into your life? So, you know, when I was rowing, when I was still in Boston, you know, training out of the, so BRC trained out of the Weld uh, boathouse. You know, in the winter, once the river was frozen, we would, you know, trudge over to Newell, row in the tanks, come back. And I would occasionally guest coach. If there was, you know, if Carrie Graves, you know, if she was, wasn't going to be at practice, you know, she might say, straight, you want to coach one of my crews? And I was like, okay. And I did it for Liz. I did it for uh, Lisa Hansen occasionally. I mean, I want to say, you know, maybe a total of 10, 15 times while I was rowing you know, just take it out. And it was fun for me because, you know, oftentimes, and I think guest coaching is great because oftentimes that coach, he or her, or they are telling the athlete the same thing that their own coach is, right? But they're saying it maybe a little bit differently and suddenly, cha-ching, little light bulb can go off. So I'm always like, yeah, come on in talk to my people because I can't get them to do, you know, or, and then, and it's just vice versa. So if you can get, you know, talk to an athlete and just tell them something like, Oh, I never thought of it that way. I did that. And then I, um, my, my parents used to live in Hilton Head and we, meaning my family and I have uh 21 year old twins and we were there probably when the kids were in seventh grade, super boring. It was the summer. My dad had started Hilton Head Island rowing or Hilton okay. Head crew. And he was one of the coaches and it was a summer. And so I said to the kids, like, do you guys want to go out and mess around in some boats? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay, let's go down to the boathouse. And uh, we stuffed them in a couple of moss 
arrows or something big. And my dad and I are out in the launch and they're just, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Hilton Head, but it's it's all these marsh grasses and stuff. And it's really pretty. Anyhow, we're my dad and I are watching the kids and it was it was another one of those, hmm, they're kind of like naturals. Like, oh my God, they're actually getting their hands in front of their knees <clears throat> before starting their slide without anyone telling them. And the next day they both said, hey, can we go out in the boats again? And I'm like, sure. We go out again. Then we come home to California. And one of the things with my, our kids is that we just, yes, we wanted to encourage them to do a sport or do whatever, but I definitely wasn't going to tell them that they should row. So I stayed away from that one until one day they were like, hey, do you think we could find a place where we can row? So I, um, I did find a place for them to row and they started doing that. That program kind of went under and then they ended up going over to Marin, um, where a very good friend of mine, Amanda Cashman, coaches a middle school program. Um, she was a coxswain at Weld BRC when I was training. And she's somebody who was terrified of me. Mm-hmm. And now we are like besties. Yeah. My, so my kids started rowing there and then they went to Oakland Technical High School in, and in ninth grade, they started rowing. And you can imagine I'm at the first regatta, right? I'm just a mom walking around with the kids. I don't think my wife was there. And of course I did bring my tool bag, right? Cause you have to have your tool bag. So you know, I'm looking around, but I'm just going to help rig boats. Right. Yeah. You know, and the coaches are like, don't touch that. It's like, <laughs> so I, I, I've done a little rowing and I'm, I'm going to do it finger tight with this. And I'm explaining, you know, and, oh, and, you know, I can help fix this footboard here. And Okay. So they let me kind of help rig and derig boats. And eventually you can imagine over the course of a season, they figure out that I've rowed. So, and then they asked me to coach. So the next year I'm coaching the novice women. And then the next year I was coaching the varsity. Yeah. So I got kind of sucked into it. It's super, they're so much fun. You kind yeah. of fell into it. You weren't really expecting to. And next thing you know, you're touching boats and people want you to do things. Yeah. And it was like, you know, it was super easy. And, you know, it was a little difficult with my kids because, um, you know, taking the mom hat off, putting the coach hat on, and they were super good about it. One of them rode for about two years in college. The other one, not so much. They didn't continue doing it, but that was fine. But anyhow, yeah, so the coaching just kind of got sucked into it. And they're, it's the best part of my day. I, I love that. And and I think that's hard to find. You know, we have a, a coaching pipeline issue uh, in this country right now. And, right now. and really you know, as someone who, like Rachel, has been a master's coach and had another job, you know, and, and done but, all of that because it's so sporadic, you know, and it's not the greatest pay, you know. So you have to really do it out right. of a lot of love and well, and, and I I don't know if you figured this out or whatever, but I'm volunteer. So for seven okay. years, I've been doing this. It's pretty funny. About about two, maybe a month before Christmas, I was out with uh, a men's double. Like I call them men, but they're, you know, young, young men. And uh, at one point I said something. To, oh, I know. I, I said they were in a new, like a relatively new double and, and testing it out. I was like, how, how does it feel, you guys? And they're like, I don't know. And they're like, well, how much are they selling it for? And I said, I have no idea. It's above my pay grade. And then I said, actually, I have no pay grade. And they looked at me and they said, what? And I said, I'm volunteers. It's like, you do this and don't get paid? And they were just shocked. It was very funny. But open their eyes to them. I mean, it must relay to them how much you really love doing it and how much you love the sport and and, uh, working with these kids. Yeah, I mean, I, and the other thing I do today, I send out a little email to say, <clears throat> or text to say, anybody interested in in sculling up at Marin? And it's a kind of a first come, first serve. So five people respond, and then those five will go with me. And I contact Amanda up at Marin, and she says, okay, what are their weights? Figure out what boats they're going to be in. And so she's got her middle school program, and I'm bringing, bringing up a bunch of high school rowers just so that they can spend some more time in small boats up there, sculling, no pressure. They're just spending time in a small boat, which in my personal opinion, I think that if you can scull well, if you can row a, a small boat well, you can do anything. The sweep rowing comes naturally. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I, it seems like, I might be wrong, but it seems like, especially coming out of COVID, more programs are starting their rowers of all levels in small boats, in, in sculling boats, and then maybe moving them into sweep boats. But um, yeah, the stability and the, the self-control you learn in small boats, it, it translates so well into sweep boats. Right. And so, safety too. You know, they feel comfort, comfort level if you're in a small boat, you know. What is your vision for the future of rowing? It's what's happening here in the Bay Area. My vision um, is is more of the same without this other stuff going on. You know, for me, it's expanding rowing here in Oakland. I want to expand rowing to include other high schools so I can get um, and also reaching out the other high schools in Oakland. A lot of them are more predominantly African-American minority. Or I think what a U.S. rowing has done and what the IOC and world rowing are doing with regards to the trans issues is right on board um, and should take care of it. I wish everybody was doing what we're doing here in California. I love that. It's a, it's a really special time for those kids when they can find a sport where they can uh, come in the door of a boathouse and feel loved and feel like they're at home. You know, Rachel and I talk a lot about boathouses being a second home, a second family for some kids, a primary family, you know, depending on their situation. And uh, I know here on Vashon Island, we have a lot of non-binary and trans kids in our rowing program. And it's just really important that they know that the people who care about them, the people who are in charge, the referees, the officials are, are seeing them as belonging to the sport. And I think, I know that's for me, my vision of the sport. Uh, it's done a lot for me personally. And I know Rachel and I talk a lot about why it means so much to us. And, and if we can all three of us, you know, pay that forward and make that a, a reality, I think that's the ultimate goal, you know? Totally. Yeah. I yeah. just, uh, you know, taking care of these kids, making sure that they they're in a safe place and they're they're loved, they're accepted. That's the you know, that's the best. That's the, what we can do for them. It's the least that we can do for them, right? But now you <clears throat> fired me up. I'm going to start figuring out a flyer. Thank you for making some time yeah. for us this Thank morning. Thank you, Sarah. What we're excited about is this is actually turned into something bigger than we initially thought it would be. We thought we maybe we'd do this one episode and somehow we'd kind of blend the conversation with Mary, with the conversation we're having with you. And then we really started thinking this, this needs to be even bigger because there, there are other voices that we still haven't included, which are actual trans and non-binary athletes. So um, right now we're calling uh, these two episodes part of a larger series on yeah. gender identity policy. And I, I think that this is going to be a, a, a really important conversation to have. Yeah. And no one else has been talking to them um, from the rowing world other than rowing news published something they didn't have a conversation with them so i think it's going to be really interesting well i appreciate your candor and your and your vulnerability and just being really real about your personal experiences with this and and as a coach and a mom you know i think that's really important yeah well i think i want to thank both of you for everything that you do thank you thank you thanks trayer thanks so much take take care of you guys bye-bye bye To see photos of Coach Ann Strayer and get links to the people, clubs, events, and policies mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Coming up on the next episode, D.C. native Rebecca Armstrong rode three years in high school before signing with the University of Wisconsin. Three years later, she was invited to the U23 Women's National Team Selection Camp before signing on as program director at the Chicago Training Center. Today, Rebecca is coaching at Lincoln Park Boat Club while pursuing a Master of Arts in Clinical Mental Health Counseling and a Master of Science in Sport and Human Performance. Hey, Rachel, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Oh, so much more. Yeah, we get together on Instagram Live for Coffee Chat every Friday morning at 8 a.m. West, 11 East. We bring that post-practice Coffee with Teammates vibe online to talk with the community about all things rowing. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. And make plans to visit us at the 2023 U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals. That's July 20th to 23rd in Indianapolis. We're going to have a tent, so get more information when you subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. 
Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Oar, and RowSource. Catch new episodes of Steady State Podcast every other weekend, anywhere you get podcasts. That's all for today. In two, way enough. That's one, two.